and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Ullekert, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your other host, Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels today. So for this episode, we are talking about Europe's response to the war in Gaza and the possible consequences of this re-sparked conflict in the Middle East for Europe and its ever-shifting role in that region. Indeed, we all condemn the massacre by Hamas on the 7th of October. We all call for the release of hostages and we all have to protect and save civilians in Gaza. We clearly condemn this terrorist attack and this terrorist group and recognize the right of Israel to protect itself and react. But day one, we say that this reaction and the fight against terrorism, because it is led by a democracy, should be compliant with international rules, rule of war and, and humanitarian international law. And day after day, what we saw is a per- permanent bombing of civilians in Gaza. The devastating war in Gaza following Hamas's brutal 7th of October attack on Israel has, among other things, underscored just how hard foreign policy can be for the European Union. While European leaders were quick to declare solidarity with Israel, they had palpable difficulty defining a response as Israel began its heavy-handed military campaign in Gaza. Hamas, of course, also continued to fire rockets into Israel, while settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank and clashes between Hezbollah and Israeli defence forces around the Lebanon-Israel border raised fears that the war would spread. Across the EU, demonstrators demanded a ceasefire, anti-Semitic and anti-Arab attacks proliferated, and both Muslim and Jewish communities feared for their futures. Member States officials and parliamentarians criticised European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen for not calling on Israel for restraint in Gaza during her visit there on the 13th of October. Just days before, EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell had suggested that some of Israel's actions in Gaza were not in accordance with international law, and European Council President Charles Michel urged respect for humanitarian law. The confusion was further reflected when the EU first announced a freeze of development aid to the Palestinian Authority, only to recall the decision hours later after several EU members complained. Then, in a General Assembly vote on the 27th of October regarding a humanitarian truce, eight EU members voted in favour, 15 abstained and four voted against. Aside from the challenges of the war itself, the EU's difficulty in defining a position and a role raises questions about its geopolitical future at a time when Russia's war in Ukraine has underlined the interdependence of Europe and global security. Disarray in US domestic politics would seem to put a premium on effective European leadership, but the EU is, and has long been, missing in Israel-Palestine. Is this proof that the EU is not yet fit for purpose? And if so, what does that mean and why does it matter? So to talk about this, we are very pleased to welcome Julian Barnes-Dacey to the show. Julian is the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He has spent much of his career writing about European policy towards the Middle East, with a particular focus on regional geopolitics. Julian, welcome to War and Peace. Many thanks for having me. 
Now, before we get started, I'd like to just note for our audience that we're recording this conversation on November 29th, and we plan to post it on December 5th. We are going to do our best to stay evergreen, but of course the situation on the ground may shift. So having said that, um, Julian, the EU's response to the war in Gaza has been described as disjointed and chaotic, and that's by people who are friendly to the EU. How would you assess uh, the European Union's response in the immediate aftermath of Hamas's attacks and since? So, yes, I, I mean, I, I think it has been um, uh, fairly incoherent and, and, and weak in terms of a, a European role on the global stage. And I, I think that that comes down to two things. I mean, I think there is clearly a reality that Israel-Palestine is an issue that is uh, deeply divisive across and within European states. Um, it's as much a, an issue about the Middle East as it is about domestic European politics. And you haven't been able to shape a common European position on, on the back of that. But the other reality here is that the Middle East is a hard place to do business. And Europe doesn't have a great track record there. Uh, you have a lot of players in the mix here. Uh, Europeans are, are somewhat at the back of the line in, in terms of having leverage and ability to try and shape developments. And, and that obviously has shown up the first position to, to a certain extent. We're more focused on the lack of coherence, I think, uh, because we're actually less able to, to, to do much on the ground and therefore we concentrate where we can. So it hasn't been a great response. We, we can get into some of the details, but, but that would be my initial take on, on how this has played out in the first couple of months here. Could you unpack some of the positions that different member states have taken, that different parts of the European Commission has taken, and was there anything in those responses that surprised you? So I think that, you know, the day after October 7, th there was a strongly united European uh, position um, in support of Israel and support of it, its right to self-defense. And that, to a certain extent, is a baseline position that, that continues to, to run through this day. I mean, I don't think there is any European state out there who is actively questioning that. But but obviously, as the conflict has gone on and, and as the devastation in, in Gaza has, has increased and, and you have 15,000 plus killed now, Gaza devastated, you've seen an increasing divide between those member states, the likes of, of Germany, Austria, uh, Hungary, the, the Czech Republic, who have really kind of lined up wholeheartedly and, and to a certain extent unconditionally behind Israel's right to, to do what it needs to do to, to protect itself um, against Hamas against the second bloc comprising the, the likes of, of Spain, uh, Belgium, Ireland, who have been much more um, uh, vocal in, in the need to protect Palestinians on the ground, to, to not hold the entire population of Gaza um, in, in kind of hold them all collectively responsible for, for what is happening and have been more willing to call out Israel and to say actually that, that it is time for a ceasefire. Most European states have talked about the need to, to align behind international humanitarian law. They said that Israel needs to commit to that in its action, but, but it's really been more of a mantra than anything that, that's meant much because you really haven't had Europeans unpacking what that means in practice and where to draw the line and, and, and how to respond if actually Israel does cross that line. And I think, you know, there have been a number of, of very coherent observers who, who have pointed out that perhaps collective punishment uh, lack of proportionality in Israel's response has crossed that line. But Europeans have been unwilling to really recognize where that line is and, and so haven't really been able to come to a collective position on what that means. 
Then you, you do has a, have, as you say, the position of, of the European Commission. And again, that's been somewhat divided, the European institutions. You've had certain commissioners calling for, for a stronger line, for, for an end to European support for Palestinian NGOs on the ground. You've had the EAS and, and Burrell who have been quite vocal in, in, in terms of pushing back on this and saying, no, we need to continue supporting that. Van der Leyen and her first trip to the region obviously caused a bit of a controversy when she didn't mention international law. Burrell then came out a couple of days later and said, well, actually, she doesn't speak for the EU on foreign policy and, and Israel does need to abide by by, by international law. So, so obviously the perspective out of Brussels as across many of the member states, has not been coherent. It's not been acting in common. Um, you have different people putting in different positions, and that's played out in a number of weak statements that the EU has put out. You've had long, long debates about whether to call for a humanitarian pause or pauses, plural. You've had uh, uh, failed attempts to get new statements out calling for a pause and fighting. So it has weakened the European response here. You have different member states really pushing in their own directions. You had the Spanish and the Belgium prime minister who were in Israel and Egypt last week, quite vocally causing for, for Israel to restrict itself in terms of its military response, calling for a ceasefire. You obviously have the likes of the Germans continuing to, to support Israel pretty strongly. So it's a messy picture and it really has not helped the European ability to try and make a difference here. Um, and once again, has very much ceded the ground to the likes of regional players, the Americans, the Iranians. Uh, they are the countries that matter here. Um, Europeans are very much focused on, on their own internal dynamics in, in, a, in a fashion that hasn't been a great picture of European foreign policy. So aside from not sniping at each other and saying that various uh, officials don't actually speak for the institutions they represent, um, what would a coherent European policy towards this conflict look like? And what would the implications be of Europe being more coherent? Well, I mean, as I said at the beginning, I think, you know, one of the reasons we're so focused on this is precisely because we as Europeans can't really talk about what a kind of real European push on the ground would look like because we've never really been in that place. Um, so it's much easier to talk about how we're all divided and, and that's, the blockage, as opposed to having the, the harder conversation, which is to recognize that, that even if we were coherent, the degree of, of attention and, and kind of political capital that we'd have to put on the table to make a difference would, would be quite considerable. Europeans obviously have a number of relationships with, with actors on the ground. Um, they put a lot of money into supporting uh, the Palestinian Authority. They have a channel to Iran, which to the likes of the US don't have. All of these are tools that could be mobilized to push and to prod, to encourage both the Palestinians and the Israelis to work with the regional actors, whether that's trying to press the Iranians to not escalate, whether that's to push with the Qataris to try and get hostages out and to open up a humanitarian space. But of course, you have to have a position. And, and if you don't have a position, it, it's all a bit of an illusion here. I mean, my view is that we push, should be pushing for a ceasefire. We should be trying to use that space to, to wedge open a political moment that we, that can be used to free hostages, to get humanitarian aid, and to basically recognise that, that without a political track, there is no end game for, for Gaza and what happens after the conflict that is sustainable. But Europeans are not really aligned behind that position. And it makes it a bit of a fool's errand, in a sense, therefore, to think about how Europeans could make a difference, because obviously, this is my view, others in, in Germany or in Vienna or in Hungary will be saying, well, actually... The priority here is to, to come in strongly behind Israel to ensure that Hamas can't launch any more rockets. 
and and frankly, we sh- we we should be lining up um, behind that position. I mean, you've stressed there, and I think elsewhere, the importance of Europe needing a coherent and cohesive response, and the fact that it is doesn't currently have one. What would it take to get there? Do you think it is possible to get there? So I think this is a particularly difficult issue. I mean, it, it's not just in Europe; it, it's globally. Israel-Palestine polarizes like no other issue, and it runs through domestic politics like like few other issues. Whether it's Germany and it, it, its past, whether it's France and and kind of how it it thinks about its relations with with kind of its own internal um, Muslim country, whether it's countries like Belgium and Spain and Ireland, which have traditionally stronger ties with with Palestine. I mean. It runs deep in, into the psyche of, of many European countries. And I think it, it, it's very unsurprising, in a sense, to think, therefore, that, that, that we're unable to get a common position. I mean, European countries are deeply divided over this. And building a coherent position on top of that is going to be an incredibly hard thing to do. I think this is where you do need strong political leadership. I do think you need uh, uh, leaders who are able to articulate what the European interest is. I think you need them to identify a pathway for common action. But navigating that in, in the current climate is an immense challenge. So, so I, don't, I don't know what it would take other than me saying to you, look, there's an analytical political case to be made that uh, escalation in Israel, Israel-Gaza doesn't help Europeans, that an ongoing conflict is not going to help Israeli security, it's not going to pave the way for a two-state solution, and, and that, that Europeans should be much more forcefully pressing for a ceasefire and, and, and using what, what leverage they have, which isn't great, but which is some to press both Israelis and Palestinians in a way which they haven't done in the past to get behind a two-state solution track. Um, but that's my analytical take, and it's not one that, that necessarily you know, gets much traction in, in different parts of, of Europe. And, and that's the incredibly hard sell. So what is that leverage, either over Israel or over Hamas or over Hezbollah, anybody else? Where, where does the EU actually have leverage? Well, I think, I mean, first and foremost, probably Europeans, when they do come together, they, they do bring political weight to the table. That that does count for something. Um, you know, Israeli relations with, with Europe have not been good for quite some time. But I think that's partly because Israel cares about what Europe says. Um, and, and it hasn't always been willing to align with, with the position coming out of, of Jerusalem. So I think a strong uh, European position on what is needed, um, encouraging and calling out both sides to take the hard but necessary steps would make a difference um, on both the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. And frankly, for too long on this conflict, we've been prepared to kind of sustain a status quo rather than really being willing to acknowledge that it's fundamentally stuck, that we can't continue like this, and that, that rather than just being comfortable with, with maintaining the situation as, as it is, we should call it out and, and, and try and push it in a different direction. Another dimension of that political influence is, is as I said before, the fact that, that the Europeans um, do, I think, have a, have a closer alignment with regional states, and perhaps the US does on this, that it, it has a, a continuing dialogue with Iran, um, that I think it could it could use in a much more energetic and, and focused manner to, to try and shape developments. The Europeans are, are, are very willing uh, to talk about the economic leverage that they bring to the table. They support the PA in, in, in quite a significant um, fashion. But again, here we have a problem where for too long they've been prepared to support the PA in a very kind of status quo fashion rather than using that funding 
to push the PA to reform itself in a manner that is so necessary if, it, if it's going to regain legitimacy, push back against Hamas, um, really emerge as a credible interlocutor, both within Palestinian domestic politics, but also in terms of broader negotiations. So it's a combination of, of these different things that I think where Europe does have some, some influence to bear. Much of it will only be useful if tied into other tracks, if combined with what the US and what the Saudis are, are doing, for instance. But fundamentally, it's an acknowledgement. Do we have something? Are we prepared to push it? Are we prepared to make people uncomfortable in making a, a case that we think is for the strategic good of both the region and European interests? And, and, and sadly, it seems that for too long, we haven't been prepared to make that decision. We can move now to think about what happens the day after, if, when, hopefully when, soon, the fighting stops in Gaza. So, I mean, you've argued, and I think we at Crisis Group largely agree, that Israel's goal of totally eradicating Hamas is simply unachievable. I mean, we've heard from a number of European states, in Germany in particular, that, you know, that they want to see the eradication of, of Hamas. What do you think when the war is over? What approach should Europe adopt with regards to Hamas once the fighting so, stops? So, so I think just just firstly, it's worth saying that the way this war ends, continues and ends, will will shape that the kind of the range of possibilities quite quite significantly. And you know, the longer this goes on, uh, the the level of destruction and death on the ground, the amount of missiles we have continuing to 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 go into Israel, the the degree to which we see wider regional escalation. I mean, these are all key determinants. Um, unfortunately, you know, by and large, it seems that the, the longer this goes on, the harder the possibilities get. You may inflict more pain on, on Hamas in an operational level, but strategically then it, it becomes harder to think about how you, you stand Gaza's po- civilian population back up, how you re-engage in a, in a political track that I think most people recognize as necessary for, for anything sustainable here. So I do think it's important to say that we need to focus on, on ending the conflict. And, and you know, the, one of the complaints that regional states have had of, of Americans and others is you keep coming to us talking about the day after, whereas we need to focus on, on today and ending a conflict. And I think that's a very valid and, and, and fair first point to make. And I think, you know, I, I would agree with, with those saying that, that we need to focus on a ceasefire today, because if not, tomorrow is, is going to be out of reach. When we do get there, I mean, it, it's nothing but dilemmas and difficulties. I, I don't believe that, that there is a, an easy way to, to push Hamas out of the picture. I mean, I do very much believe that, that it would be good and that Hamas should be pushed out of the picture. Um, I don't think that, that they have been good for, for Palestinians. I don't think they've obviously been good for Israel. And I think it's it's a, a very kind of fair desire to see them not ruling over, over Gaza and not having a military role there. Um, but I think this will have to be a kind of a Palestinian-owned process if it's going to be sustainable and legitimate. And so the question then is, is how do we stand up Palestinians to, to own that process? I don't really think that there's going to be much international appetite for an international force, whether it's Arab, whether it's whether it's Western, putting troops on the ground, owning this this pile of rubble, frankly, this, this governance mess, this security mess. 
um, it, it really is not going to be a burden that, that people want to manage. I think the kind of the sense that, that Hamas will make whoever is there, uh, their life incredibly difficult. You know, these are all very valid observations. And, you know, I, I think we, we need to be thinking about how can we lock in a ceasefire? How can we prevent further escalation? How can we help meet the immediate needs of, of Palestinians on the ground so they don't collapse into desperation, frustration, which feeds a desire to leave Gaza or, or radicalization? And then to very much focus on, on how we can support a kind of renewed, legitimate Palestinian voice that, that can move in and, and, and can kind of compete, can offer an alternative to, to Hamas. And and that may be a reform PA, it may be a wider Palestinian body. That that's not really me to say, but I think we need to invest energy in terms of, of creating the framework for that. Um pushing the PA to, to relax its authoritarian grip, to allow new elections. You know, I think it's critical that Europeans and others continue to support financially Palestinian NGOs and human rights organizations and civil society, which are frankly the, the, the key ingredient, ingredient that, that needs to be there if there's going to be any legitimate uh, Palestinian partner that we want to support that, that can can hopefully in time push aside Hamas that can be the bedrock of or the foundation stone of a new political solution. So, so these are some of the things we need to be doing. There is no easy, quick answer, I'm afraid. I, d- I don't think there's any easy solution. I think that Hamas is going to be in the mix in, in, some, in, in some capacity. I think we're going to have to accept that to a certain extent, you know, civil servants who were part of the Hamas administration up until October 7th, you know, the day after the conflict ends, we'll have to take off their coats and no longer be Hamas civil servants, but they will be Palestinian civil servants. I think we need to acknowledge that there are some who did that, not because they were ideologically aligned with Hamas, but because uh, th- that was the, kind of the, the, the reality of, of power on the ground. Um, and I think that, that we're going to have to find space to, to work around that. Um, obviously, there's going to be an ongoing kind of security role that Israel plays in terms of pushing back against Hamas, taking out Hamas cells and so on, so forth. I think that that's unavoidable. I think you know, others will work with them. But I think it's important that we don't um, allow ourselves to be consumed by a narrow security focus in its t- entirety if we're going to try and chart some stabilizing, inclusive pathway forward that can actually offer Israel what it deserves and needs. In, in terms of sustainable security and, and a kind of partner on the ground that, that, that it can and, and hopefully wants to make peace with. So do you see European reconstruction assistance being designed to these ends? Is that something that can be done? Or is that a nice thing to say, but too hard to actually do? Well, you'd hope. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you would you would hope that the, the Europeans would be thinking strategically about how they use their money, whether it's development support to NGOs or reconstruction support, to 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 kind of stand up um, those elements of, of of Palestinian civilian and, and political life that, that that are needed. But Europeans don't have a great history here, and you know, as I said, one you know the risk is that they just fall back on stale kind of tired ways of doing business in, in Israel-Palestine. Um, we have no other partner. We're going to support the PA as it is. The PA is corrupt. It's authoritarian. It's not inclusive. That doesn't help anyone. Or, it, you know, Europeans fall back into what they're doing now, which is allowing domestic politics to kind of poison the debate and limit the the support that they're willing to offer Palestinian civil society on the ground. So we see less 
money going in, we see money not being channeled to the real partners we want to be supporting, and, and that ends up being counterproductive. And again, we, we cede the space to, to forces that, that, that we would rather not see continuing to cement their hold on Gaza and on the Palestinian territories at large. So it, it, will, it will take some strategic thinking, it will take some hard thinking, it will take a willingness to press a strong case with Israel and not to accept kind of the, the way that Israel wants to do business as the kind of the, the only way to approach things here. And, you know, Israel has had Gaza under siege for, for a long time now. That hasn't helped the situation. It's withholding tax revenues from the Palestinian Authority. It's been seeking to divide the West Bank and Gaza. We see what's happening in the West Bank right now in terms of settlements. So, I mean, this is part of, a, of, of one picture as well. And Europeans need to be willing to press hard on the Palestinians and Israelis and to really make a strong case for, for a revived, renewed political track that, that thinks in new ways if it's going to stand something up here. Turning to Europe and looking at the repercussions of this conflict for domestic politics in Europe, what do you think the reverberations will be? And particularly, will there be ripple effects on this conflict around Europe's migration policies? Are European countries already considering changes to migration policies or taking measures to prevent potential migrants coming from Palestine? So I think the most kind of tragic and, and disheartening kind of element of, of the European response has really been the way it's played out in terms of domestic politics and narratives, and, and, and obviously most painfully in terms of the increased anti-Semitism, uh, the increased racism that we're seeing. And, and that, I think, first and foremost, it, it plays out in terms of that, and, and that feeds in, in into domestic politics, into elections. We have European parliamentary elections coming up. Um, next year, we've seen protests, we've seen violence, we've seen crackdowns on on freedom of speech, you know, all, all very much working against the kind of liberal model that, that Europe proclaims. The, I mean, it, it will play into the migration debate, undoubtedly, because, you know, the, the kind of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim sentiment by nature feeds the anti-migration sentiment and we'll, we'll see a further crackdown. I mean, I don't think that there's an immediate sense of risk that you're going to see Palestinian refugees flowing out of Gaza and, and onto Europe, mainly because Egypt and, and other countries won't, won't, won't allow them through. Um, they can't get out. Yeah. They can't get out. Exactly. They're stuck, you know, both because these countries don't want to take the burden of that, but also because they're fearful that Israel won't allow them back in if, if they do leave. But but so, so I don't think the, the kind of linkage is that direct, but the anti- Muslim narrative that we do see rearing its head in some places will empower those voices in Europe who are saying we need firmer we need firmer limits on kind of migration inflows we need to crack down more you know yes let's strike that deal with Kais Said in, in Tunisia let's strike a deal with Sisi in Egypt you know the the, the kind of the, the values of that don't really matter if, if we can give them money and they can stop refugees coming in great and certainly the kind of the right in Europe will push that more forcefully than, than ever. And, and undoubtedly, you know, talk of Hamas and radical Islam and, and all of this feeds a, a very negative and, and kind of destructive cycle of the European discourse. So coming back out, what does this mean for Europe as a global actor? I mean, is this a litmus test that Europe has failed um, and wow, what do you do now then, except hope that nothing too terrible happens to the Americans? Or, you know, is there still room for Europe both to get, do this better and do the rest of it better? Or is it simply that this isn't a European priority, that Europe's foreign policy could be smarter, but not in the Middle East? 
So absolutely, there's a need and a space for Europeans to do better. There's no doubt about that. And, and it, it's strongly in the European interest and Europeans have to do better. But obviously, this has hit Europeans quite hard and the West quite hard in terms of particularly kind of the global narrative of the rules-based order and everything that we've been talking about for 20 months since uh, the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and, and the, the kind of the gap between the global South, which is by and large very supportive and sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, and the West is as acute as ever and, and lots of, of talk of double standards and, and so forth. But I think what's, what's interesting to note here is um, that realisation, I think, is more true for Europeans than it is for the global South. The, the, the West response to what's happening in Gaza and our inability and unwillingness to call for international law and really call out Israel and pose that has not suddenly woken the global South up to double standards. It has merely kind of proven more truly than ever for the global south that this is what the west is about and it has made a case for them i mean if you are a, a, either a citizen or a government in in the middle east and north africa you've seen european double standards for, for for quite some time now whether it's migration deals whether it's deals with authoritarian governments whether it's security deals. i mean that that so this tells the region and the global south nothing new but it makes it easier for them to to, to shine this light on on the west and i think it, it has been becomes suddenly much harder for Europeans to stand up behind that narrative because they themselves have been confronted with this reality. And I think there is a deep discomfort across Europe with a recognition that, yes, we support Israel, but we're not really doing that in a manner that, that, that stays aligned with, with international law and the values that we proclaim to support. And I think so. So this is more of a self-reckoning than anything. And I think that will kind of affect how Europe shapes its global relations going forward. It won't be able to use the same narrative of global rules and, 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 and kind of international law as it engages with the global south as it tries to mobilise support for Ukraine and elsewhere going forward. And it will cha change the parameters of the debate. It, it will mean that Europe now, I think, has to deliver in, in a more real way on a lot of issues. And maybe that's a good thing, frankly. I mean, I think we've been slightly stuck from my perspective on this discourse, which hasn't had much traction with the global South for so long. I think we need to be more cognizant of, of where we stand. I think we need to acknowledge our weaknesses. I think we need to reach out to the global South on, on issues that, that matter. We need to treat them as serious actors and, and stop kind of infantilizing them with, with this kind of narrative. Um, so it places a new challenge on Europe's shoulders in terms of, of where we go in this new global order. But that doesn't get away from the fact that absolutely, to, you know, to begin where you started, Europe needs to do more on Israel-Palestine. It needs to not just wait for Biden to call for a ceasefire and then kind of come in behind that. And that's what's going to happen. I think we all know that. But eventually the US will change its position and then Europeans will, will, will fall in behind that. Um, I think we need to, to, to recognise now, kind of two months in, that, that we've gone as far as we can on the military track. I think we need to, to, to shape a, a strategic position that, that follows through on that. I think, you know, it's interesting, we had this kind of peace day conference in the UN in, in last September, where the kind of Europeans got behind this big initiative, offering lots of incentives for a two-state solution and, 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 you know, made a lot of noise about that. What Europe didn't do there is really recognise that actually, let's roll up our sleeves and, and kind of confront the hard challenges to get to the two-state solution. And I think we're in that scenario right, right now. We can't just talk about our desire for a two-state solution and how much we will get fully behind it and put lots of things on the table, carrots on the tables to make everyone's lives great after that. 
we need to recognize that the, the graveness and the acuteness of, of the kind of seriousness of the situation right now and the way it plays into domestic politics, regional security demands that the kind of Europeans, along with regional actors and the US, steps up now and makes the hard choices and the hard pushes to open up the space to push the parties towards the two-state solution so that then we can deliver the carrots that we're all too keen and happy to talk about. And I was going to say, do you see that happening? Probably not, sadly. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're, everyone is energetic about this is a new opportunity for a two-state solution. It's now or never. My sense is that probably in six months' time we'll have reverted back to where we were pre-October 7th and the situation will be ugly and stuck and we won't really be strategic and willing to take those hard decisions. Wow. Well, on that very, I don't even think sobering is the right word for it, on that very depressing note, um, we are out of time. Uh, Julian, this has been a really interesting conversation and thought-provoking, so I would like to thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. For more from Julian, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at JBDacy, and you can check out his work on the ECFR website. We also encourage you to check out his piece in Politico entitled What Europe's Role Should Be in Israel-Hamas War, uh, which he co-authored with his colleague Hugh Lovett. To read more of Crisis Group's work on the war in Gaza, you can check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group and us on various forms of social media. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group and Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. And I'm gone, but I'm on Blue Sky and Mastodon as at Olya Olakra. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Figursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We are looking forward to chatting with you again in a couple of weeks. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.